The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au That's John chapter 4, reading from verses 1 to verses 26. Reading from verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Near the plot of the ground of Jacob, uh, near the plot of the ground of Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to, came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I, I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read from verses 11 to 22 this morning. 
Paul is writing and he says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's again ask for God's blessing, shall we? Loving Father, we come before you with the Word of God open before us again. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God might take and teach us the truth of this Word. Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us. Father, we pray that you would change us according to your Word. You would revive us according to your Word. You would strengthen us according to your Word. And Father, we pray that you would save the lost according to your word, through your word. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and just flip back a little bit to the verses 18 and 19 of the previous chapter, we can see there that what Paul is doing over chapter 2, 1 through 10, and then 11 through 22 is he is pointing out to, this, to us the greatness of the power of God toward, at work toward us. He says in verses 18 and 19, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he gives three illustrations of that power. First of all, he shows that God's work is toward the victorious Christ as he takes him and he raises Christ from the dead. He seats Christ above every other authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And he gives Christ as head over all things to the church. That's the power of God at work. And then secondly, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, God's work towards saving and regenerating dead sinners. He took us and he made us alive together with Christ. 
He raised us up together with Christ and He seated us together with Christ and He prepared good works for us to live and do all throughout this Christian life. That's the power of God at work toward us as sinners saved by grace. And then thirdly, God's work to make Jew and Gentile one new man in Christ. And that's our passage for these three weeks, these few weeks. Now, last week we looked at how the Jews and Gentiles came to be so divided, so separated. Remember our scripture reading Andrew brought up here and he read John chapter 4. And I didn't plan it that way, but just thinking last night about what he was going to read. And there Jesus goes and he meets a Samaritan woman. And what does she say to him? How is it you're speaking to me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. You have nothing to do with us. And the Samaritans were like half Jewish and half Gentile. And even they were kept at a distance from the Jews. And what God is doing is he is bringing two things that are massively separated. All of humanity can be divided into two parts, two halves, if you like, Jew and Gentile. Those who are God's people and those who are not. And he has to bring them together and reconcile them together to in one body that he might reconcile all of humanity to God and he might gather all of humanity, all of existence together under one head who is Christ. There is a need for peace. There is, uh, there is discord and enmity and division. There needs to be a peace, there's need for reconciliation. And God, as we said, has in mind one great purpose for everything that he is doing. It's to gather all things together under one head, even Christ. So it's necessary for him first to reconcile us to God and also to reconcile us mankind to mankind. Because reconciliation brings peace. You don't have to look far in the newspapers and on NBC News and CNN News and all the other ABC News, all the different news programs, and all you see is discord and contention and division all around us. And mankind is desperately looking for someone to bring peace. All of our peacekeeping efforts outside of Christ are completely fruitless. I was sharing with you last week, they set up the United Nations that they might establish and maintain peace, world peace. From the day it was set up until this day, there have been exactly five days where there has been world peace, where no two groups were at war with each other on record. And I would be willing to bet that they're off record. Somebody somewhere or some group was at war with somebody else and they just didn't know about it. They can't bring peace. It takes Christ to bring peace. Peace. For man to be reconciled to God, we need Jesus Christ. For mankind to be reconciled to mankind, for man individually to be reconciled to man, we need Christ. For without Christ, there is no peace. Even as we progress in Christian fellowship, there's a need to strive for peace, to make peace, and to maintain peace. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that God's heart is grieved, is sorely grieved when someone or some people within a Christian fellowship sows discord and destroys peace between two brothers. The Bible says in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, it describes seven things that God hates. And one of them is the one who spreads strife or sows division and discord into the company of God's people. 
Psalm 133 in verse 1 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, to have that peace one with the other. What God has done is made peace between us and Himself and between us and each other. And the way that we show the love of Christ is by living in that peace and that unity, that loving care for one for the other. God has established peace. Christ is our peace. He is the embodiment of the peace that we have. Without Christ, first of all, we will have no peace. Secondly, in Christ, we have the peace that He purchased. And in Christ, we have the unity that He created. Now, we're just going to look at the first two. We'll look at the third one on your list there in your note sheet next week. I, I just didn't see having time to do all of it this week. So we'll, we'll put it off for next So first of all, without Christ, we have no peace. Now, last week we surveyed the Old Testament to see why it is that Jews and Gentiles are separated. We considered Paul's command to remember those things that before they were Christians, the Gentiles were separated and cut off and excluded. We saw in verse 11 that they or we were the Gentiles and all that that involves cut off and distant from God. In verse 11, we saw also that we were the uncircumcision, regarded as separate and unclean and defiled by the Jews who are the circumcision. But we also saw and we rejoice that God has circumcised our hearts, not our physical flesh, and He has done that great work within us. I want to see this morning also... Sorry, last week we saw how we were separated from the Old Testament hope of Messiah. He says in verse number 12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. And the idea there is not so much Jesus Christ, but it's the idea of everything that the Messiah hope holds for the Old Testament people. We were separate from that. We were cut off from that. But now in verse 12, I want to look at a couple more of these things. Remember... First of all, we were excluded from the citizenship or the commonwealth of Israel. Notice what the text says. Look down at your Bibles. He says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now notice, first of all, the term commonwealth. It can be translated as citizens or citizenship. Literally what it means is the polity, the people. It it describes a group. There is a corporate identity associated with Israel as God's people. Now Israel back then was a theocracy. Now what that means is they were governed by God as their king. And Israel as a people knew God as king from... uh, Exodus 19 all the way to 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 8 when very sadly Israel rejected God as being king over them. But even though they rejected God as king, he did not stop in his role as sovereign ruler and king over his people. He kept in place. He governed through the earthly kings and he promised David one day a great king will come, one of your descendants. He ruled and governed his people as a theocracy. God retained his place in sovereign rulership over his people through the earthly kings. Israel is the people of God in the Old Testament. God's commonwealth, God's citizenship. They're described like this. In Deuteronomy 10, Israel described as a chosen race. 
In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Israel is described as a holy nation. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Israel was a people for God's own possession, and Israel was a royal priesthood. All of these things describe them as the nation, the people of God. The Jews of the Old Testament were citizens of God's nation, God's people, and God's kingdom. And we, as the Gentiles, the uncircumcised in our flesh, were excluded from citizenship in that commonwealth of Israel. But, and this is the cool part, but now in Christ, it's changed. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it describes us speaking to Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians together. It describes us like this. Does it sound familiar? We are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people for God's own possession. It's the exact same terminology that he used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. That's the church now. We are his people, his citizenship. We've been brought into that royal race, if you like. That's exactly what the Word of God says. We're his people. So we rejoice and we remember that although we were once separate and cut off out of that, we have now been brought in and included as part of that, as God's new people. We've got to be careful how we understand the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Israel and the church. There's a lot of disagreement and a lot of discussion, and it's a difficult thing to sort out. There is very clearly some continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, and there's also some discontinuity. There's a great deal of discussion and debate and disagreement about how we should see that. But we can clearly see that there is some continuity from the old to the new. So although we were once excluded and kept out from that, we have now been brought in and included because he says so in the Word of God. Second thing in verse 12 to notice. Remember that we were aliens from participation in the covenants. Read verse 12 again. He says, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now you may remember a few months ago we talked about what covenants are. And a covenant can be simply described like this. It's a binding blood bond relationship between two parties. You see it in the Old Testament. God forms a relationship and he does it in blood. The idea of the, the Hebrew word for a covenant, if I remember correctly, is barith. And it has the idea of cutting. So often you can say they cut a covenant. You remember the story of uh, Genesis chapter 12? No, 17. Uh, Abraham is there, and the Lord is there. He says, take now the animals, cut them all in half, and lay the pieces opposite one another. And in the Old Testament times, what they do is when they formed a covenant or a, a very binding contract between two parties, it could be two men, doesn't have to be man and God, what they would do is they'd take those animals and they'd chop them right in half and split the piece aside, put them opposite each other, and the two parties would step up and they would walk kind of like walking down this aisleway here. They walk between the pieces of the dead animal cut in pieces. And you say, what's the point of that? What they were saying is, may this dead animal thing happen to us if either one of us breaks this covenant. So it was a covenant cut. So as the animals were cut, they were saying, may this happen to us. May these curses fall on us. 
So God has formed blood bond relationships with his people all through the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, the Lord formed a covenant relationship with Abraham. He promised him land and blessing and a seed. And that seed, Paul says in Galatians, is Christ. He's the one to come. In Exodus 19, you jump ahead a little bit in the story, the Lord formed a covenant relationship with Israel and Moses up on Mount Sinai, and he promised him blessing and life in exchange for obedience to the law, and he also promised him curses and judgment and death for disobedience to the law. Who here struggles to read through the Old Testament? Oh, good, not just me. <laughs> Sometimes the Old Testament, you're reading, you like, what's the point of all these old stories? I'll give you a little clue. Take your Bibles when you have a chance. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy and read Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And what you have is Israel piled up and they split them up onto two mountains and they give them a copy of the law each and half the nation of Israel on one mountain and half the nation of Israel on the other mountain. And what one, guy, one side does is they read out loud as a group, loud so everybody can hear all the blessings for obedience. You will be blessed in your, in your vats and in your fields and in your houses and in your animals. And you'll be blessed as you come and blessed as you go, etc., all the way through. And the other side, they read all the curses that happen. You'll be cursed in your vats and your wine barrels and in your fields and in your barns and in your houses. And then you go out against your enemy in one direction. You'll flee in seven and, and seven enemy will conquer a thousand Jews and all this. And it's all these curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience. So keep that in the back of your head. As you read through the Old Testament, look and see what they're doing. Are they obeying or are they disobeying? And everything, if you understand it through that filter, it'll actually help you understand what's going on in the Old Testament. It's a simple way to understand it. But simply this, the Lord formed a covenant relationship with Israel, promising him Blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. And then in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord forms a covenant relationship with David and he promises him a son or a king to sit on the throne of Israel in perpetuity. There'll always be a son to sit on the throne. And Jesus, when he is born, what's he called? The son of David, the son of king. He's a promised king who's coming. But here's the thing. Back to Ephesians and Paul and us. We Gentiles were strangers to those covenants. And what that means is we were excluded from participation in those covenants. Abraham was part of that covenant as he did. And his son, this covenant was repeated to Isaac and repeated to Jacob and repeated to Israel again. We were strangers to those covenants. We were not included among them. And those covenants, by the way, all have their fulfillment in Christ. Christ is Abraham's seed through whom all the nations are blessed. Christ is a fulfillment of obedience to the law, and he's also the fulfillment, as we'll see, of the curses for disobedience to the law because he endured all the curses of God on the cross for our disobedience. He's also... Um, he's as David's son. He's the king of kings, the one who's enthroned and seated. But we were aliens and strangers from participation in those covenants. We were kept out of it. But now, as believers in Christ, we have been reconciled and brought in. 
Now in Christ, we've been included in the new covenant. Remember that God made peace through Christ and we're included in that covenant formed in Christ's blood. You remember what he said? Call the disciples together, they're having the Passover meal. He picks up a cup at the table and he says, This is my blood of the new covenant. And what he's saying is there's a brand new covenant being formed, a covenant of grace, a covenant of peace, and my blood will be the blood that's poured out in order to establish this covenant. And all of us as Gentile and Jewish believers are participants in that covenant made in Christ's blood. Remember, brother and sister, that we the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, that we were separated from all the hope of Messiah, all that included. Remember, we were excluded from citizenship in God's people. Remember, we were aliens and and strangers from participation in the covenants. Because of that, there is an enmity, there is a discord, there is no peace between Jew and Gentile. The Jews hated and despised and remained, put themselves always separate from Gentiles. But we Gentiles equally despised and hated the Jews, probably in no small part because of they, the, the way they hated us. There's an enmity there. There's a disagreement there. I was reading one of the commentators, and he said that um, they wanted a tour of Israel. He said he didn't quite understand that enmity, that, that distinction between Jew and Gentiles. He walked into a place to eat dinner, and he, and he didn't really... He wasn't part of the group, and they all went in. So he came in by himself, and he sort of looked around, and he found a place to sit, and he went over, and he sat down. And he began to eat. And, and before he picked up the food to actually eat it, somebody came over and reminded him quite politely, but quite firmly, he was in the Jewish part only. He needed to go and sit over there. And he thought, wow, he didn't really... And he felt that distinction, that enmity against him. These are unbelieving Jews. And so he got up and he very quietly, politely walked over to where he was supposed to sit and sat down. There's a strong enmity between Jew and Gentile. And what Paul is showing us is the power of God to destroy that enmity and bring mankind and reconcile man to man together in one body. There was no peace between Jew and Gentile. There was no peace between man and man. There's no peace between man and God. Without Christ, there will never be any form of lasting peace. But now, this is the part I just keep loving. Do you notice, by the way, chapter 2 and verse 4, but God? And then chapter 2 and verse 13, but now? They're parallel. He shows, first of all, in 2, 1 to 3, all of the thing about sin and living according to the lust of the flesh and the reasons that we're underneath the wrath of God. But God, but God steps in, intervenes, and then we're, we have life. Then the first couple of verses, 11 and 12, we were excluded, we're aliens, we're cut off, we're separate. But now, in Christ, it's all been changed. It's God's work, God's intervening on our behalf. But now there is peace. Christ has brought us near to God. Something totally impossible if left up to us. Christ has made the two into one. Jew and Gentile. Something seemed totally impossible up to us. Christ has abolished the enmity between us. He has made one new man. He has reconciled us in one body to God. Christ came and preached peace to those near. Did you notice that? Later in the chapter? 
So the Jews needed to hear the gospel of peace just as surely as the Gentiles needed to hear the gospel of peace. He came and preached peace to those who are far away. That's us. And we, Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ, now we have access to God in one spirit. It's all about reconciliation, bringing to estranged parties together, making peace and giving them that access, that fellowship, that relationship with God and with each other. So how did Christ purchase peace and forge unity? Well, the second point is this. In Christ, we have the peace that he purchased. He purchased our peace with three elements, and we can see them in the text. His blood, his flesh, and his cross. And all three of those point to the death of Jesus Christ. Notice the scripture. Ephesians 2 and verse 13, the Bible says, But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The first thing I want you to understand is the word near. Now, I tripped over it for quite a while thinking, did he bring me in or he just bring me close to in? You know, I mean, there's, there's close but no cigar and there's all the way in. What does it mean? What does the word near actually mean? And it's actually better in the old English word, he brought us nigh. Uh, you may have, if you have an old King James, you may have that word in there, N-I-G-H. It's actually the idea of a close relationship. So what Paul is saying is he brought us into a close relationship. He brought us near. And the implication in the text is he brought us near to the Father. He brought us near to God. He brought us nigh to God. He brought us into that relationship with God. Notice next in the text. The tense of the verb, there's a passive one. He says, we have been brought near. We did not bring ourselves. He brought us near. He did the work. How then, question is, did Jesus' blood bring us near or bring us close to God? And we have to remember this. In the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you'll find the same thing. There is no approach to God without blood. Uh, Wes was reading in Leviticus about how they brought strange fire. The idea was the coals taken off the altar was a picture of the blood offering that had been burnt up. And as they brought it near, they put it into those special censers and put the incense on top and spoke of prayer. It's all related to bloodshed. If you walked, I think I've told you before, if you walked from the gate of the tabernacle all the way into the Holy of Holies, the first thing you go by is this great big bronze altar and growing up, I thought the altar was, you know, the size of a pulpit, but it's probably more like uh, three meters by three meters and about two meters high. It was a massive bronze thing, and it was a great big fire. And all around the bottom was a trench, and the lower half of that altar was covered in layers and layers and layers of dried blood. They would take the animal, cut its throat, catch all the blood, and they would literally throw that blood out of the bowl against the altar and the splash of that blood would be a reminder that blood was shed. Jesus' blood is how we approach God. The blood is the payment, the placating element to turn aside the anger of God against us for our sin. Blood soothes the anger of God. That sounds grim. It sounds grotesque. We hear today lots in the church and in some of the more liberal churches. We don't want to hear about the blood anymore. It's all sick and gross and yuck. 
Well, the reality is if you walk in that tabernacle enclosure and work your way all the way from the gate, past the altar, past the big uh, lave or the water, and inside the tabernacle, all those furnishings, beautiful gold furnishings, all sparkling in the light, would be tinted and tainted by blood splattered everywhere. Because the priest had to make it pure by sprinkling blood on everything. You go behind the veil, if you could actually get behind and pull back the veil and have a look, and there's a great big box. It's not a lot different in size and shape as this table. And on top of that was the cherubim overlooking the, the surface of the table, and the whole thing would be covered and splattered in layers of dried blood. Why? Because there's no approach to God without blood. Blood placates. It soothes the anger of God. The Bible says this in Isaiah 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. That's one of the most amazing statements in the Bible, isn't it? God was once angry with us, but his anger has been turned away and now he comforts me. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 11, the old King James, I love the way it renders it. He says, he being God shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It's the idea of his anger is soothed. It's drenched. It's drained away. It's, it's dealt with completely. God's anger was turned away by the blood. And so we are able to approach Christ made peace with his blood. Remember what the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The Gentiles were separated from God, but now they're brought near. How are they brought near? By Jesus with his blood. He said this, Jesus said this in John 10, verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and we, they will, sorry, they will become one flock with one shepherd. Remember the story of Jesus and the Samaritan that Andrew read? What's at the beginning in the King James is an old, you know, stodgy kind of phrase. It says, he must needs go by Samaritan or must needs go somewhere. It's the idea that he had to go. You, you look at the map of where Jesus was and where he was going and the way he went there, it was out of the way that he went by Samaria. And Jesus purposely in the middle of his busy ministry went out of his way to go by a well where he knew one woman would be there in the middle of the day so he could reach out to her and share with her the love of Christ, the gospel message that she might know who the Messiah is so he could gather her in a sense and bring her in. A Samaritan. They hated the Jews and the Jews hated them just like Jews and Gentiles. He had to go to bring her in. The Gentiles are also brought near to the Jews. If you look at the temple of uh, Solomon, the one that was rebuilt during the time of Jesus, if you walked up the temple outside, the furthest away part was what they call the court of the Gentiles. It was remote and set apart. There's a big wall built between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And posted around those walls were signs that said that if you brought, if you came as a Gentile into the court of the Gentiles, sorry, if you came as a Gentile into the court of the Jews, 
you could lose your life. Remember Paul? They rioted because they thought he had brought Titus, a Greek, into the court of the Jews, and they threw them out of the temple. I want you to imagine that Jesus gets up out of the tomb on that great resurrection morning. And coming with his blood, he walks up to the temple. He walks through the streets of Jerusalem. And he walks into the temple courtyard. And he passes the, gent- the court of the Gentiles. And he puts one arm out and he starts to scoop up, if you like, all these Gentiles who are worshiping there. And he brings them with him. And he walks through those gateways into the court of the Jews. And he takes his other arm and he wraps them around the Jewish people. And with one arm around Gentile and one arm around Jew, he goes all the way up right into the holy of holies with his blood and with his blood he brings Jew and Gentile together into the presence of almighty God and when Paul says in verse number 13 there but now in Christ Jesus you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ it's exactly what he means He doesn't mean Jew first and Gentile sometime later. He means together. He brings them in as one new body. He made peace through his blood. Moving on. We remember. Remember that once we were outside of this. Why do we have this remembrance service every week? Not every week. Every first and third. Why? Because it's a great reminder A little cup of juice, we pick it up. I often think about just taking it and just spilling a little bit on the back of my hand. Just to think about uh, the nail that went through Jesus' wrist. Uh, I'm not a very good shot with a nail gun. I actually managed to shoot myself right through my thumb with a a big framing spiker. Yes, it hurt. Um, And I remember pulling the nail out because they said to me, pull it out. And then all the blood run down from my hand and rolled my hand. I'm just looking at it. And it just struck me. The blood that would have been all over Jesus' hand. When I think about that little remembrance and the little cup of juice, I often think about just dripping a little bit on my arm. You see why? To remind myself that it was blood that purchased me. To remind myself that I have been purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know what else, brother and sister? We get in disputes and spats with one another. We break down fellowship for one reason or another. Usually they're pretty small. And very easily, very quickly, we start to condemn and look down our nose at the person that we're in dispute with. No, well, you know. <laughs> you know. It was blood that purchased that brother and sister. It's blood is the reason why we're sitting here this morning together around the Lord's table. We're sitting here together as a church of the living God. It's blood that bought that for us. Now, I don't know about you. I'm jumping ahead to the end of my message a little bit. But I don't know about you, but how quickly do we forget? I remember that it was blood that bought me, but how quickly do I forget that it was blood that brought my brother and my sister in Christ too? He also purchased our peace through his flesh or in his flesh. Notice the text in verses 14 and 15. He says this, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now, there's a couple of elements in this. So we need to understand how they work together to figure out the message he's giving us. 
First of all, what is the barrier of the dividing wall? Secondly, what is the law of commandments contained in ordinances? And how does he abolish them in his flesh? It's some interesting thing to understand here, and it's good when we get to it. Now we know, we know that the enmity is the hatred, the disregard, the separation between Jew and Gentile. We've seen that already. Now, in the original, the word for enmity stands in a very particular position in the sentence. It's called an apposition, like a position. And what it means is it's two phrases or two words that refer to the same thing. Okay, so you could literally understand that the barrier and the enmity are speaking of the very same thing. Now, the law of commandments, that's pretty easy. We understand what that is. That's the law of Moses that God gave Moses up on Mount Sinai. And the ordinances are among all those laws, all the things relating to the separation between Gentile and Jew. Okay? you got circumcision, ceremonial laws, cleanliness laws, food laws, all those things. Now, they were designed to promote a holy lifestyle separated to God by the Jews. But instead... Those laws were used by the Jews to build walls, if you like, to keep the Gentiles out rather than to maintain a holy life. Because we can even see some of the Old Testament passages. Reading just the other day that one of the kings went into the court of Solomon's temple and he built altars to the moon and the stars and some of the animals. And he was worshiping un, well, worshiping false gods inside the temple of the living God. Those laws were used by the Jews to build walls. Now, here's the thing. When we come to the New Testament, one of the things that we quickly begin to think, in attitude if not specifically, is sometimes we say the law is the problem. Oh, it's just the law. If there wasn't a law, there wouldn't be a problem. The law is not the problem. You've got to remember that. And keep that in the back of your mind as you read through the New Testament. The law is not the problem. In fact, Paul even says in Romans 7 verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not the problem. Our sin is. So how then did Christ abolish, which is a poor word in my NASB, how did he, it's a better rendering, how did Christ render inoperative the law of commandments contained in ordinances? Let me give you an illustration. I may have told you this story before. I don't have a great memory, so if I have, please forgive me. Uh, I was young, 19, 20-year-old, and I owned a, a Dodge Aspen. Who's ever heard of a Dodge Aspen? Yeah, one of you, Petrol Head. My friends all owned, like, you know, Mustangs and Chevelles. I owned a car named after a tree, right? It didn't pronounce speed and livelihood. That old Aspen, 1977, you could open the hood, sorry, the bonnet, from the outside by just putting your hand on the least to catch and lift the, the bonnet up. And it had a, a high-tension lead that went from the distributor to the coil. And if you unplug that, then what would happen is you get inside the car, put the key in, turn the key in, like nothing, right? So I was inside my friend's house. My, other, my brother-in-law now comes outside, pops the bonnet, pulls out the high-tension lead, puts it over the, the indicator stem on my car and goes away. I come out in the dark, get in the car, put the key in the ignition, turn the key, and I'm turning, and there's nothing. Like, not even a click, right? And you just, ugh. So I get out, and I'm not a mechanical guy. I open the hood like everybody else. You're supposed to open the hood. I figure maybe there'll be some revelation. I'll figure out what the problem is. Can't see it. And then I get back in the car, and it's all dark, and I'm fumbling, and I feel this thing banging against my hand. 
So I pull it out, and it's a piece of rubber cable about yet long, right? And I'm thinking, oh, this has got something to do with it, because it wasn't here when I left. And I went back, and I figured out in the light where this thing went, plugged it back in. Sure enough, boom, the car started, and off I drove. What's the point? The point is this. The battery had sufficient power to drive that coil to fire up and give ignition to the engine so it started and went. By removing that connection, that little piece of cabling, yay long, away from the battery, what I did was, or what he did was, he rendered inoperative the battery to start my car. He removed that connection. And what Christ does when he dies on the cross is he renders inoperative the law of commandments against us. You see, well, how does that work? How, did, how is it that in his flesh he abolished or rendered inoperative the law of commandments? And the answer is this. He did it by meeting all of the demands of the law by his perfect sinless life lived in the flesh. Right? He came God in the flesh. He's God incarnate. He had to walk this earth. He had to keep all the commands. His life was characterized by a sinless life. Which of you can mix me, convicts me of sin? He asked. And that was the response. Nobody said a word. They couldn't find false witnesses to agree against him. Pilate said, I can't find any fault in him. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He met all of the law's demands for all of us on our behalf. So by meeting all the law's demands, he rendered inoperative the law to make any more demands on us. Not only that, you say, but yeah, but we've all sinned. Here's the thing. When he died on the cross, he met all of the law's demands against our disobedience so perfectly, so fully, so that your sin, if you believe in Christ... If you're a believer, your sin is taken care of past, present, and future. Which means this, that the law of demand, law can't come to you and say, well, you know, Stephanie, I saw you. There was this thing you did on this day here. And Stephanie go, yeah, but the Lord Jesus paid that penalty on the cross. And the Lord will go, oh, you're right. It's done. So there's no more demands a law can make on her life because Christ has met them all completely. He's fully paid all the penalties. His sinless life fully meets all the law's demands. And so what he does is he renders inoperative the law of commandments. And by doing that, all of a sudden, the things that the law requires of us are taken away. And Jew and Gentile, in that moment, they can see that what the law demanded, they can't keep. So every single one of us, Jew and Gentile together, must come to God by faith, not by keeping the works of the law. In one sense, it, it levels the playing field. It's not like Jews are saved one way because they're Jews, and we're as Gentiles are saved another way because we're Gentiles. We're all saved the same way. And so what Jesus did, he abolished in his flesh that dividing wall. He tore it away. He said, you're all together. You're all on the same level. And when he died on the cross, he died to pay the penalty for the believing Jew just as much as the believing Gentile. And we're all on the same level. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So in Christ, 
We are reconciled. We're reconciled in one body to God. I love that picture. The way he puts it. Look at verse 16. He says, he might reconcile them both in one body to God. He doesn't say, and might reconcile them both to God in one body. He puts the one body first. And this is what I think it is. It's not like he goes to heaven and he says, here's the Jew and brings him. Oh, oh no. here's the Gentile and brings him too. He says, here's Jew and Gentile. He brings them together. Puts his arms around both of them and says, now we're one. We're all in Christ. We're one. And then he brings them both in one body to the Father and reconciles them in one. Christ has made peace. He's made peace between us and God. He's made peace between man and man. The law that gave rise to the enemy is forever answered. It is not by keeping the works of a law. It's by faith in Christ. Listen to what he says in Galatians 2. He says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of a law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of a law. The Jews needed someone to meet the law's demands for them, and so did we. And Christ in his flesh has met all the law's demands. Obedience and disobedience issues have all been resolved. And now we have peace with God and we have peace with each other. We've got to move on because the time is going away. All the way through this week, thinking about this message, one thought keeps coming to my mind. Well, one thought can usually only fit in there at one time, so that's all I can handle. I thought to myself, you know, as far as I know, in our church this morning, there are no Jewish people. If you're Jewish here, praise God, we're we're so glad that you're united to Christ and united to the Father with us. But I thought to myself, well, how how does this affect us? What, What are the implications for Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church in 2017 from this text? So what do we do with this? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of things. Number one, we remember who we were outside of Christ. Number two, we rejoice that in Christ we've been brought near. Number three, we give thanks. Because that tends to strip away at the at rising pride. We rejoice, we give thanks, we meditate on the cost of being reconciled both to God and to each other. And the sixth one, this is the one that kept coming back to my mind again and again. We strive to maintain the peace that Christ has purchased. All the way through, I kept thinking about that verse. How easily do we allow pride to creep in and the peace to be put aside? How easily does my pride... I'll I'll make it personal, okay? You can apply it to yourself or the Spirit of God can apply it for you. How easily does my pride, my self-righteousness creep in and destroy the peace which Christ has purchased with His own blood? Listen to what the Scriptures say in regard to peace, both individually and corporately. This is New Testament talking to believers. He says... For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. He says, Romans, or Galatians 5.22, sorry, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness. 
In Romans 12, verses 17 and 19, he says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 14, 19, So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Ephesians 4, 1-3, we'll look at this in a couple of months. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a way or a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We preserve, we maintain, we strive, brothers and sisters. And you know what? Um, just sermon aside for a second. I find in my life, I am a contentious guy. I, I find it easy to get into an argument, and I find it so easy to have the last word. I just keep talking. And very often, we can cause disputes, we can cause division, we can cause contentions among the body of Christ because we simply won't give in. Because we're simply too prideful to say, you know what, for the sake of peace... We let go. He says, being diligent. He says, pursue the things which make for peace. We live, number one, as spirit-filled believers, setting our minds on the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of that mindset will be peace with one another. There is a verse in the Proverbs that says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And listen, brothers and sisters, it's happening not just in this church, but in every church I've ever been in, and even ones I haven't been in. Believers are at enmity and disputes with one another over one thing or another. Now, this much I know to be true. When there are those discords and disunities and dissensions and divisions, without a doubt, there is sin in the life of one or both. And the way we deal with peace, the way we create and maintain, not create, the way we maintain and preserve peace in the church is this. It's exactly the same way that Jesus did it. He came and he dealt with the issues of sin first. And then he brought them together. And my boys will get into fights once in a while. It happens in, in good homes as well as not so good. I'd say, guys, listen. Oh, he did this to me, you know, and he, he did, and, and really, um, I can't embarrass my kids. I won't tell the story. Um, but often, <laughs> Con says, yeah, go on. Uh, no. Um, sometimes we get into disputes and angers flare and tempers go mad. And we do things that we... Uh, we regret. And I say, guys, oh, but he did this, and you know, I, I, and I was, just, I was just trying to read my Bible, Dad, really, and he just came in and started hitting me. Oh, I'm sure that's the way it went, for sure. I say, you know, what did you, what did you do to him first? 
And eventually the story comes out, well, you know, I was teasing him, or I was doing this, or I was doing that. And I would say, you know what? You never mind about what he did. You go to them, and you make right what you did first. You deal with your own sin, and let God deal with them about theirs. That's amazing how... And I've done the same thing. I've been in situations where I've said things I shouldn't have said and, and opened up and flown off the handle and all the rest of that. And it's amazing when you go to someone and say, you know what, I spoke too quickly. I acted too quickly. I was wrong. Please forgive me. They may have done far worse. But when you do that, it's amazing how the walls just come down. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we just broke bread together. And in taking that body in the bread and taking a piece of it and passing it, if, we don't do it literally in our church because of, for different reasons, but in the old church they would take an actual loaf of bread and they would pull a little piece off and pass the loaf the next guy. And he would pull a little piece off it and pass it the next guy and so on, all the way around the room. And the beautiful thing in that picture was we were sharing in one common loaf of bread. It reminded us that we were sharing in each other and in Christ. When we break bread together and take the the wine together, we are celebrating fellowship. We're celebrating the peace that Christ has purchased with his blood. And we're even warned not to take that if there's disunity and discord between one brother and another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm pleading with you, not just because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a fellow brother in Christ, and i got just as many faults and flaws as you do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to deal with the sin that is between us. Set things right. Pursue the things peace. Why? Because Christ purchased that peace with his blood in his flesh and on the cross. Does that make sense? All right. Would you, would you stand with me and we're going to pray and then we'll sing the benediction together.